I started something new. Ooh, new. New's always fun. New's always fun, especially right now. So, as we all know, there's very little that's within our control right now. And I mean, I, that's just kind of life, right? That is life. But I feel like especially now, there's a lot that's out of our control. And so one thing, as a control freak myself, that does feel nice is when there's something I have control of and I get to be in charge of that. It's like my little project. And um, her name is, no, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> not a person. It, it is. It's me. So I've started on a weight loss journey. And I'm using one of these apps that really dives into the psychology around your relationship with food. Because let's be real, I've always had a relatively negative and very shame-filled relationship with food. And it shouldn't be like Mm -hmm. that. It should never be like that. No. And that is something that is just born out of the society that we grow up in, that we live in. And it's something that we all have to consciously fight against. So I found... This app uses psychology and you log your stuff. You know, I'm doing an eight month program and I'm really excited about it. Like my weight has been up and down my entire life. That's just how things have been, mostly in my adulthood. Not so much as a kid. I was a chunky kid, but puberty hit me hard. So like, I was a bowling ball as a kid. So (laughs) I like that you're doing this healthy weight loss and like healthy health journey. Wow. How many times can I say health? You know, but no, it's this is the thing. It's not just a health journey. It's like a wellness because it's like both your like physical health, but also like your mental and well-being. Because exactly like for me, I've been on a weight loss journey this past couple months, but it's because when I'm depressed, I don't eat. So she's skinny, but it's not <laughs> it's not healthy. <laughs> so right. I like that you're kind of taking this taking like ownership of your well-being yeah to do that well and for me it's maintaining motivation has always been my downfall and so this is not a diet it's not about restricting yourself i can eat whatever i want it's just thinking more about portion sizes limiting the things no i don't even want to use the word limiting but just oh there's a word and i it has fallen it's failed me it's gone Um, it's just knowing your boundaries and still getting those things that you like. Like, cause I have these, this is going to sound whatever, but it's these dark chocolate covered raspberry almonds that are my everything. And I've been eating them as like, I hate them so much. You've never had this kind. I have. We used to have them at work in our break room. I hate them. Well, I love them. They're wonderful. And I don't need to eat. Thankfully, with dark chocolate, you just eat a little bit and you're like, you're good to go, at least for me. But anyway, the point I'm making is I don't have to cut those out completely because I don't want to. I want them. I've never been able to get on the dark chocolate train uh, because I don't like eating bitter wax. But um, (laughs) whenever I choose milk chocolate, I feel like a six-year-old getting like a chocolate (laughs) Easter bunny. But um, you know what? I like my chocolate with milk and sugar. Y'all can have your waxy bitter. I just need to nibble the corner and that's all I need. It's like, yeah, that's all you need because it's all you can taste for nine hours afterwards. Wow. Mm, tannins in solid form. <laughs> Dang, you have some hatred towards dark Listen, chocolate. It's because I've tried and then I got to a point where I was like, you know what? It might be healthier, 
but I don't like it. And if, like, that sacrifice, it's like brown rice. Yeah, sure, brown rice is healthier. But is it healthy enough to suck that much joy I get from eating white rice, or in this case, eating milk chocolate? No, it's not worth it. That's a valid point, and I 100% support that. And with that, I just want to say, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I have strong opinions on food, apparently. (laughs) I mean, you do. We talk about food a lot. We're basically a true crime, wine, food, wellness, I was about to call us a blog, uh, podcast. (laughs) I mean, listen, when you talk about food, I literally have had the idea the last couple weeks that I've talked to Brittany about, like, what if I started a cooking YouTube channel? So, yes, very much obsessed with food. <laughs> food is wonderful. Almost as wonderful as our amazing patrons. And I know you guys have heard about Patreon. We've talked about it. And actually... Here in a little bit, I'll tell you about our topic. It's a director's pick. That is just one of the perks that you get if you are a Patreon member. We've got different levels. You get access to murder minis. We're going to be doing a series of new things over the next couple of months. Q&As, videos with us. We're trying to figure out a way to do live stuff on Patreon so you guys can tune in with us, you know, real time. So more information mm-hmm. coming on that soon. But if you haven't checked it out already, hop on over to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blood and wine pod. Also, make sure that you are subscribed to us on whatever way you're listening to us right now, whatever your podcast listening platform of choice is. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, all the main things, Podbean. So just hit that little subscribe button. That way you'll get episodes every Tuesday when they're posted. They automatically come to you so you don't have to worry about ever missing an episode of Blood and Wine. So like I said, this week's episode is directed by one of our Cabernet Sauvignon convicts, and her name is Holly Varjak. You know, we talked with Holly the other day, we were chatting, and Holly had something really specific in mind, which we love. So when you think about suburbs and these ideal neighborhoods back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was a different time. It was a very different feeling than suburbs are now, although very similar, but kind of Stepford Wives-like is what I always picture when I think of like the 50s. Yeah, little boxes, little boxes, you know. So we are going to be talking about mid-century murders, specifically focusing on the 1950s. I'm interested to see how you took this, because I think I took it in a different way, because I feel like the 50s is such an interesting concept, because it it is like that Stepford Wife thing, you know, the mid-century everything, but it's also such a veneer. There's so much social unrest, and it's mm-hmm. coming on the heels of World War II. The Cold War is in its height. I mean, shit's going down. And yet it it has this, like, plastique veneer of, like, mom, dad, and 2.5 kids with the white picket fence home, and that's not what it was. No, and that may have been reality for some people, But definitely not everyone. Well, it's interesting to think, like, I wonder what veneer is going to be put over the 2010s into the 2020s in 30, 40 years when we look back. Because, like, when you think of the, I don't know, the 80s now, it's like, oh, yeah, punk and colors and big hair and stuff. And it's like, oh, honey, no. 
So I don't know. I I think it's so interesting. But um, yeah. So I think uh, I think our murders might uh, not even just crack the veneer, but blast that bitch wide open. Yeah. Well, before we blast that bitch wide open, as you <laughs> as you said, <laughs> so eloquent. Um, let's uh, blast open our wine. I mean, I'll <laughs> open it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's delicately open our wine so we don't break the bottles. There you go. Although they're pretty strong. But anyway. All right, Tyler, what wine did you pick for this episode? So the wine I'm drinking today is the 2019 Brancott Estate Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro, New Zealand. Because of course it is. And this one, she got 91 points and a gold medal. And it was like 10 bucks. And I don't think I've had this one. I like the name is so familiar, but I went through all of our notes and I could never find it, so I don't think I have. Wait, that's the, the blue at the top or whatever. Didn't we do that yeah, one? Yeah, it's it's like a Tiffany blue and gold. Didn't we do that one when I was there? Did we do an Instagram wine review on that wine? I think we might have. <laughs> okay, that makes me that makes more sense. Makes me feel like I'm not going crazy. But I guess for those that listen to our Instagram story. You know what we think, but for those that aren't following us, you didn't get a sneak preview because that <laughs> that was planned is what that was. Yeah, sure. Anyway, though, this wine, the vineyard is gorgeous. I went to the website and just started scrolling through pictures and then started looking at like how to book an event. And it was like, here's how to book your wedding. And I, <laughs> I'm just saying, I need to get married there. Listeners, or any takers, you know, I... I'm 27, I'm single, I want to get married in New Zealand, that's... Anywho, whatever, it's fine. Uh, The wine. The aroma and palette of this wine, it is sweet, ripe fruit characters, has a very delightful mix of citrus, floral, pear, tropical fruit, and crisp nettle highlights. And I feel like maybe when we drank it last, I do not remember ever seeing the word nettle. I don't either. Because I know you can eat nettles. What are nettles? Uh, they're like stinging nettles. No, like, it's I still that, don't understand. They're the, they're the plant with the leaves that have like hair on them. And when you walk past them, they sting the shit out of you and give you a really bad rash. Kind of like poison ivy, except instead of chemicals, it's little hair thorns. But if you cook them, the little hairs go away. And I think it tastes like spinach or arugula or something. Probably arugula. That would make more sense. Okay. The Romans used to eat it. Lots of people eat them. You can make a really good frittata with them. I'm just saying. (laughs) Again, with your food (laughs) knowledge. Well, yeah. Uh, This wine is also described as powerful. And I was like, oh, it's a powerful wine. And, oh, maybe I remember this. Because they also described it as it's almost pungent in its intensity. And I'm like, make a better word than pungent. I don't like that. Don't call the wine pungent. Okay, I don't remember the wine we did in the video being pungent yeah i, I don't I, think we we've remember had conversation around that yeah around nettles okay, we, and pungent yeah i mean we have a lot of uh sauvignon blanc so forgive me for being wrong yeah so i don't know listeners i have no idea if we've had this before but <laughs> anyway it's almost pungent in its intensity full fruit flavors across the spectrum so she's on the kinsey scale good for her from a ripe tropical fruit to lush pink grapefruit which sounds amazing yes yum the food to enjoy it with uh they say barbecued prawns or salmon with poached 
whitefish, fresh green salads with parsley, lemon, and pepper. Mediterranean or Turkish dishes with hummus, olives, and feta are also a good match. And y'all, I made a homemade coconut red curry for dinner tonight, and it pained me. I had to fight myself so hard not to open this wine and have a glass of this with my curry, because that, to me, is like the best combo ever, is Sauvignon Blanc and a spicy curry. Yum. Yes. But I'm going to get into this. It is a screw top. And it really is a pretty bottle. It is definitely like Tiffany blue. It is. I love that color. I know. We all know. Your headphones are that color. They are. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) It matches. It needed a little extra splash. Okay. Oh, it smells so crisp and fresh. Okay, get into your wine because I'm about to start drinking this one. (laughs) I will admittedly say I'm a little bit nervous for this wine, but with uh, how I opened up today's episode and what we were talking about at the beginning, you'll understand why I decided to finally try this one. So this is the 2017 Fit Vine Cabernet Sauvignon from California. And you may have seen this wine around. I've seen it at a lot of places. It's between $12 and $13.00. And I found it at Trader Joe's. I've also seen it at Total Wine. I think I've seen it at the grocery store. But these wines are supposed to be better for you. They have less residual sugar and less calories per glass, which means less calories per bottle. It's one of those, they're, what does it say on the back? It's basically just like, you know, live your active life and be able to still drink wine without feeling guilty about it, which I just realized this I mean, it's good and all, but like, again, don't feel shame drinking wine anyway. If you want to drink wine, drink some wine. But Mm -hmm. I thought that it'd be a good thing to try because we see them everywhere. And the label's really interesting because it's this dude like running, holding a wine glass and grapes. And I don't advise running while you're drinking the wine, but he is. He That's what he's doing. And it's also, he. it's like a solid white guy like white out thing think like the old iphone or i guess ipod apple commercials with like the all white people with the headphones Mm -hmm. in that does look like that um he he may not be caucasian but he's all white kind of thing this wine in particular it has 0.06 grams of sugar and 117 calories in every five ounce glass. As comparison, depending on what type of wine you're drinking, wine could be like 120 to 130-ish calories per glass. Oh. So it's less, but we're not talking like an astronomical lower amount. There is So it's funny, I almost did a Sauvignon Blanc, and if you've seen, this one's new at Trader Joe's, it's called Slim Vine, and it's a Sauvignon Blanc that's only 85 calories per glass, but the alcohol is only like 8%, so I'm like, interesting. Yeah. Um, Well, alcohol has, oh gosh, I don't remember the calculation. I want to say one ounce of pure alcohol is in itself 90 calories. Maybe it's 180. That feels right. I think an ounce of alcohol is 180 calories. So, yeah, I think to get a low-cal wine, you'd really have to cut the alcohol. And then, no, you're drinking juice. This Cabernet Sauvignon is still 14%, though. So it's still up there. 14.1. And it's full-flavored, clean-tasting, with no added nonsense. So there's less sugar, 
That's what they said. There's no nonsense. They didn't use nonsense in this bottle. It's a serious bottle when you open it up. (laughs) It takes no jokes. So, like I said, less sugar, no flavor additives. There are notes of lavender, currants, and oak throughout the wine. And a lot of reviewers, because I... I felt like I had to go look at some reviews to get an idea of what people were thinking about this wine, because it is not a cheap wine. I mean, $13 is a little bit more than we normally spend. And it's scared. Like like I said, it kind of makes me afraid. I'm like, is this going to be as good as some of the amazing wines we've had? A lot of the reviewers said it is a lighter cab, so it's not going to have that punch you in the mouth, full body. But they did say it does a good job for the market that it's after. So it's a good wine. It's not fantastic, but it's not bad. And they were like, good for the price. Also, the running dude's on the top of the bottle, too. Do you see him? Oh, there he goes. Still holding the grapes and his glass. I don't really know why he feels the need to eat grapes and drink wine, but maybe he's Roman. You know, it's just, it's getting that whole food experience. Oh, I just got the foil off, and he's on the top of the cork, too. Oh, and he's drinking the wine. Oh, he's, oh. he's drinking the wine on the bottle, too. Never mind. Oh. Like, holding it up to uh, his mouth. So, same yeah. thing. Sorry, I got excited that it was going to be one of those, like, there's little differences in each of them, because he's mm-hmm. getting closer to drinking the wine. But, nope. That would have been cute. That would have been a good marketing tactic. <laughs> yeah, Fitvine did not come through with that one. If y'all are listening, that'd be a good idea. Change it. That was a very serious pop. No nonsense. It smells like a cab. I mean, it is. It is a cab. <laughs> See if it looks lighter. Yes, it does. Yeah. That is a cab. That's the color of a Pinot Noir. Yeah. You can see through this. It's definitely more translucent than I'm used to cabs being. I almost poured it on my computer. Uh, Don't do that. Smells oaky. I get a little bit of licorice and leather. I'm interested to see how this compares to some of the cabs we did in the last episode. I was a little, I was also like, should I do a cab again? But I I did not want to try their Pinot Noir. I just wasn't really in the mood for that. I thought if I'm going to try this Fit Vine, let me get the one that I would, you know, really, really want. And that's why I went for a cab. Yeah. And if the cab is really light, then I cannot imagine how watery the Pinot Noir would be. I couldn't imagine either. So with that, do you want to cheers and taste our wines? I absolutely do. Cheers. Cheers. Damn, that's good. Oh, I need another drink. Mine is so grapefruity and citrusy and like mouth puckeringly crisp. This, this is a great example of a good, inexpensive Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. It was I'm like, like what, 10 bucks? Yeah. Your your face seems less uh, enthralled. Yeah, I need another sip. It needs to breathe. It's almost smoky. And that's not at all what any of the descriptions I read said that it would taste like. Like, let me look at the back. No. And I know it's on the drier side and it's got like medium acidity. But I'm a little bit confused because it does have these full, like, kind of smoky, oaky flavors. It's not very fruit forward, which makes sense. It doesn't have the sugars. I don't know. I think this wine needs to open up. I'm not loving it. Mm, She don't live for it, y'all. It's opening up a little bit more. It's very dry, but not in the way I'm used to wines being dry. I'm not doing a good job of describing it. It's not bad, but it's not great either. 
Just be the wine's therapist so it opens up to you. Ask it about its relationship with its family, with its parents. Well, when when you have, you know, a relationship as a therapist and as a, what are you called? A patient. That's the word. You don't, like, immediately try to find the answers out at the very beginning. You gotta get to know each other. So I'm gonna get to know this fit vine, me and the dude with the grapes and the glass of wine. We have some talking to do before I can tell you how I truly feel about this, but... Right now, my feeling is a little bit disappointed. Wow. I wonder if my therapist says that about me. (laughs) Probably. Uh, Okay. Well, with that, we have our wine. We have our mental complexes. And so we, I think, time to get into murder. Everyone. Oh, God. (laughs) You go from mental complexes to wine to murder. We've had too many cases that are that. Yeah, pretty much everyone has those mental complexes, but I hope not everyone takes it down that path. I mean, they don't. I don't think there's a statistic out there that's like, by the time you're 60, 74% of people have murdered someone. I don't I don't think so. All right, Tyler, what's your case for today? So the case I'm doing today from the 50s, from the mid-century, is the case of the murders of Harry and Harriet Moore. And the articles I used, for the first three, I could not for the life of me find authors. So I'm just going to say they're from the staff. Writers. The first article is from PBS. The second article is from Zen Education Project. And the third is from the NAACP. I also used an article from History.com by Aaron Blakemore and an article from the Smithsonian Magazine by Francine Wainuma. So, Harry Moore, he was born November 18th, 1905, in Houston, Florida. And it is this like tiny farming town in the Florida panhandle, and he was the only child of Johnny and Rosa Moore. When he was a little kid, when he was like nine, I think, his dad passed away, and his mom was working really hard to try to support the two of them. She worked at a store she owned on the weekends, and then during the week she worked in the cotton fields, but she knew that her son deserved a better life, so he was sent to live with his aunts that were in Jacksonville. And this period of him living with his aunts was like the most important time period in his life. Jacksonville had a very large and very active African-American community. It had these very proud traditions of independence and like education. And his aunts were very well-educated, well-informed women. Two of them were educators. One of them was a nurse. They took Harry, who was this like very curious and very smart little boy, into their home. They treated him like the son they'd always wanted and just really nurtured him and guided him and really bestowed this like drive for learning and growing and independence in him. And this is, if he's nine, this is like the 19-teens. So growing up being surrounded by these powerful and well-educated black women who are pillars of their community and very well-respected in the area. Like, that is just so incredible for him to have. And with all the racial injustice that was going on then and now, but especially during this time, pre-civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. only 50 years since the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, like... In the deep south, like, y'all. Yeah. So after three years of living in Jacksonville, he returned home. 
And in 1919, he enrolled in a high school program at Florida Memorial College. So he's like 14 and he's going to college. Well, he's going to high school through the college because the local high schools are segregated. Over the next four years, he was just an exemplary student. He got completely straight A's except for one B plus. And like his classmates and his friends nicknamed him Doc because he was the smart kid. I like that nickname, Doc. I've always liked that. I think it could, it's because it makes me think of Back to the Future. I've never seen Back to the Future. What? I was born in 1993. So? Okay, we're not getting into this. Please continue. I'm just There's really shocked no... and disappointed, and I don't really know how to feel. Listen, I'm gay. There is no part of me that wants to go into the 50s. Okay, Marty McFly, real cute. Um, it's funny, and also, that means you didn't watch the third one either, and so you didn't understand the significance of the meme that was like, I know the world's not going to end in 2012, because Marty McFly went to 2015, so it's fine. It's fine. Listen, what I know is that uh, this high school kid is best friends with this, like, disgraced nuclear scientist who's this creepy old man, <laughs> and it's never explained, and I don't, I don't like that. So he travels with him, not even to just like a creepy place alone, a creepy time alone. No. Well, and he goes back in time to his parents' high school and his mom hits on him. Yeah. It's real weird. Yeah. This not It's not a movie recap podcast. Also, Never seen it, not going to. You know, while I've interrupted you, I do want to interrupt again and let everyone know this wine has oh. gotten, the wine's gotten better it needed to breathe very bad. So if you get the Fitvine cab, make sure you have a good 15 minutes or so for it to breathe before you drink it. So decant this wine, breathe 15 minutes, then pour your glasses. I mean, listen, we all need to breathe after working out. So <laughs> you're basically you open the wine and it was the, <sighs> oh, shit. I just walked up four flights of stairs and I can't let everyone know that I'm this out of breath. Pretty that much. That was your wine. I know. <laughs> I pushed it too hard. It wasn't ready. Okay, so I'm jumping back into my case. Please. So then in May of 1925, when he was 19, so six years after moving back home, he graduated with a normal degree, which is like a teaching degree from Florida Memorial College, and he got a teaching job in Cocoa, Florida. For the next two years, he taught fourth grade at the only black elementary school in Cocoa. And during his first year there, he met... The source is like this attractive older woman because she was 23 and he was 20. <laughs> and I guess in the 20s, she's old. I mean, she is older, yes, but like than him. But I'm like, damn. But anyway, he met this beautiful older woman um, and that was Harriet Sims. And she used to teach at the school, but at this time she was like selling insurance. But within a year, the two of them were married. Within the year? Dang. Listen, they're both hot. They're both smart. They're like, we're fucking in love, yo. Like, this is a good fit. Let's keep this going. Marriage. Yeah. He put a ring on and it. And they're, he did. They're the, like, couple goals to the max. So her family, they lived in Mims, which is a ta little town outside of, like, Titusville. And the two of them, they moved in with Harriet's parents while, like, while they were building their own house on, like, a plot of land next door. And at that time, Harry also got promoted to the principal of the Titusville Colored School, uh, which was the fourth grade through ninth grade school. Mm -hmm. And so he was, like, the principal. He was kind of overseeing six other teachers there and 
Go Harry. In March of 28, their eldest daughter, Annie Rosalia, was born. And when she was about six months old, that's when Harriet began teaching at the Mims Colored School. So the basically the small town they lived in that was like just outside of his school district. And then in September of 1930, their baby daughter, Juanita Evangeline, was born. So they're just, like, again, this prototypical young family. They're both teaching. He's a principal, two young daughters. But in teaching, there was so much that Harry and Harriet saw with, like, all the inequality. I mean, not only were they experiencing it themselves, but also seeing it at a different scope. And so in 1934, Harry started the Brevard County chapter of the NAACP. And at this time, there were no laws about equal pay for teachers. So one of the big things they worked on was equal pay for equal work that teachers were doing of any race. They were fighting to get different lynchings prosecuted and also to get black voters registered. Because this is a time of huge voter suppression, even though... After the Civil War, voting rights were extended to people of any race. Yeah. But during Reconstruction, everything, it was so suppressed, especially in the Deep South. Yeah. And this county is like a very highly white populated county. And so his activism was very controversial. And it even led to, in 1946, both he and Harriet got fired from their teaching jobs. The state authorities were like, no, we're not going to have this like activism for black people happening. Like we're racist little fucks. So you're fired. And Harry was like, you know what? Do what you will. And so he became a full-time employee of the NAACP. He was like, you want me to stop my activism? Oh, honey, we're going full charge here, bitch. Yep. And he used those exact words. It was crazy. Oh, I thought I thought that was a quote. So then in July of 1949, the Groveland rape case became this huge national thing. And four young black men were accused of raping a white woman. And because of that accusation, this white mob went on a rampage through Groveland's black neighborhood. And like the National Guard had to be called out to restore order. It's eerily similar in parallels so many cases but the first one that comes to mind is the tulsa race massacre Uh, that's what i was thinking too that it's eerily similar and more being at this time i believe he is the president of his chapter of the naacp so he threw himself fully into the case and he uncovered that there was evidence that the defendants in the case the four accused had been brutally beaten and were just i mean Obviously, these charges were false, and they were being targeted by these racist authorities. And the most notorious one at the time there in the county was Sheriff Willis McCall. And Harry Moore brought these charges against the sheriff. Go Harry. Nothing is standing in his way of the truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He is fighting for justice, whatever it takes. Yeah. So one of the accused, Ernest Thomas, he ran and was just straight up murdered by the sheriff's deputies. The three other defendants, Walter Irvin, Sammy Shepard, and 16-year-old Charles Greenlee, they were convicted in 1949, with Irvin and Shepard being sentenced to death. But in April of 51... Irvin and Shepard's convictions were overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Like, their cases went all the way up. Yeah. And 
Lake County responded. They were like, okay, we're going to try them again. But that wasn't all they were going to do. On November 6th of 1951, Sheriff McCall, he's driving Walter Irvin and Sammy Shepard back to Lake County for like the pretrial hearing. And he shot both of them. In his car? In his car. This guy is one of the most disgusting disgraces for a human I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's an absolute trash monster. It also, I mean, is so... It's another one of those cases that it's like, oh, this is the 50s. It's so far back then. How is this really all that different from the attempted murder of Jacob Blake very recently in Wisconsin in Kenosha? Like, I mean, you're right. It's the same thing. It's just a different day. And it's just beyond ridiculous considering that's... 1950 this is 2020 we're still having these same issues that's why we're still fighting that's why you never stop fighting absolutely so in this shooting shepherd was killed and Irvin was critically wounded but he survived and sheriff mccall he claimed that the the prisoners they were attacking him and trying to escape while they were handcuffed i mean and you're in a police car why shoot to kill yeah i mean it's because he's trying to murder them that's the only reason. Yeah. It was done on purpose. A police officer's job is not to kill anyone, even if they did do something wrong. Why is that yeah. not more said? It is not their Probably. job to kill people. Yeah. For the crime of walking away from them. Also, McCall's story, according to Irvin, is not what happened. He said that Sheriff McCall just yanked them both out of the car and started firing. Oh my god. And this shooting, I mean... It, Obviously, it created a huge national scandal, and Harry Moore began calling for Sheriff McCall's suspension and his indictment for murder. Now we fast forward just about six weeks to the night of December 25th, 1951, Christmas Day, and also Harry and Harriet's 25th wedding anniversary. So the two of them were at home with their oldest daughter, Annie Rosalia, for Christmas. They decided, like, not to open any presents that day, though, because Juanita Evangeline, she wasn't home yet. She was, like, I think she was visiting either a friend or family in D.C. and was taking the train in. So they were like, oh, we'll wait to celebrate Christmas when she gets here. So yeah. they just, you know, hung out. They celebrated Christmas together, um, the three of them, and they, that night went to their bedroom for the evening, and that was when a bomb under their bedroom exploded. Whoa, what? Someone had placed dynamite under their bedroom. And Harry and Harriet were injured. Thankfully, Annie Rosalia, she was unharmed. But again, this bomb, it had been like placed under their house, directly under their bedroom. Yeah, like in that crawl space underneath. Mm -hmm. Back when homes had crawl spaces all the time, which is really weird. But it is. So Harry and Harriet, they were rushed to the nearest hospital that would treat African-Americans, which was in Sanford, Florida, 30 miles away. No one else would take them because hospitals were segregated. There were hospitals like, oh, these are the ones white people go to. You have to go to the ones that accept black people. And because of that, and it being 30 miles away, so that's probably an hour drive and I don't know how fast the ambulance got to them. I don't know how long it actually took for them to get in the hospital. Yeah. But in the ambulance, Harry died on the way to the hospital. And Harriet, she survived long enough to see her husband buried. But nine days after the bombing, she died from her injuries. Oh, my God. So the black community was mourning their deaths and outraged and calling for justice. 
because these clearly racially motivated murders. I mean, it's one of those that I feel like in a lot of our cases, the way we narratively tell them, you can kind of see like, oh, I think I know like who did it. And that's just, I think a lot of that is just byproduct of us telling it. Yeah. Not in this case, because it's obvious to literally fucking everyone. Yeah. Was there any type of investigation that was ever even opened for this bombing? Well, there was. The FBI began investigating the murders. To be completely honest, I was really afraid you were going to say no. Well, just because an investigation is opened by the FBI does not necessarily mean they're working on it. I mean, just think about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And yeah, the FBI investigated it. The FBI had also sent him letters claiming to be someone else telling him how he should kill himself and he's an awful person for years. So yeah, y'all didn't know that. Definitely look it up because uh, the FBI was definitely, whether or not they were involved in his assassination, they wanted him dead and blackmailed him, sent him threatening letters, were trying to get him to commit suicide. I mean, so I don't know. I know the FBI in this case did open investigation and it, you know, what I'm about to go into, it looks like they did do some investigating. I just don't know how much of a priority it really was. Right. So they did conduct hundreds of interviews. They even built a small scale model of Harry and Harriet's home and blew it up with dynamite to see, I don't know, test it out, do all that shit. Yeah. And immediately, the FBI honed in on the Ku Klux Klan. They were very large and active in the area, and many of the area's very important business, political, and law enforcement figures were members of the KKK. And the FBI knew that they were very aware of Harry and his activities and his activism with the NAACP and his fighting for the rights of black people. They also identified two suspects. Both of them were members of the KKK, Tillman Belvin and Earl Brooklyn, and an informant told the FBI that Brooklyn had shown him a floor plan of Harry and Harriet's home. And another witness told the FBI that they'd seen both men, like both Belvin and Brooklyn, asking about where Harry and Harriet lived, like what their address was and all of that. And there was another suspect, Joseph Cox, who, after two interviews with the FBI, killed himself. So they're pretty sure he was involved, too. But as much as it looks like, okay, shit, it's a lot of evidence. We seem to got have, like, have these people. The whole case then just fell apart. Why? Well, because of the racist fucking South. Because yeah. the suspects are known, their clan activities are known, but suddenly the witnesses refuse to talk eyewitnesses refused to testify or they were like backpedaling on their claims. Oh my god. And then eventually both Belvin and Brooklyn died of natural causes. And the investigation just stopped. Which that's why I'm like, okay, I don't know how much the investigating they really did because like you had that much and then I get it, you need people to testify in court. If every case would go unsolved because, you know, a couple people refused to testify then we would have a really shitty investigative force. Right. So I'm like, okay, well, if people aren't talking, what about the other evidence you have? You know, you know they had these plans. Why don't you get the plans from them? And just with also 
a lot of the political and business and law enforcement leaders in the area being members of the KKK, that shit was just shut down. They weren't getting anything. And so it was starting to look like the true story of these murders was not going to be told. Then we flash forward to 1978, so 27 years after the murders, and the Brevard County Sheriff reopened the investigation. Good. Way too late, but good. There was one local citizen who was, like, really against the renewed investigation, Edward Spivy, and at this time he was dying of cancer. But he also wound up giving very extensive testimony and revealed that Cox, the one who had killed himself after the two FBI interviews, he had been the one responsible for planting the dynamite under the home. And the officials also became convinced that Spivy, who, you know, the one dying of cancer, had been at the house when Cox was planting the bomb. But they were never prosecuted because the sheriff who'd reopened the case lost his reelection bid. Oh my god. And then Spivy died of his cancer. So the sheriff that won was like, "Mm, yeah, we're not going to move forward on this. They had a chance. There was an opportunity there. And Mm -hmm. nope. And again, this is in 1978. You know, after all the white people like, racism ended after the civil rights movement. No, it fucking did not. Nope. Still alive and present and very much a part Mm -hmm. of our daily lives. You know... I am going to take this moment to just remind people that just because something does not affect your daily life does not mean it is not true and not happening. Yeah. A fucking men. This case has been reopened multiple times since the 70s. In 91, Florida's governor ordered a new investigation. And though at this time there were a couple KKK informants that cooperated with the investigation, there weren't any indictments. Then in 2004, the Florida Attorney General ordered another investigation, and this time they interviewed over 100 people, and they came to the same conclusion. The four men that had been previously suspected, they were the ones that did it. But at this time, all of them are dead. Yeah. In 2008, the FBI came to the exact same conclusion. And in 2011, nine years ago, there was another attempt to reopen the case, but it failed. So they're pretty sure they have the four men. They, they're pretty sure they fucking have known the four men for decades. Yeah. There were never any any charges brought against any of them. Not even posthumously? Nope. And I think that's what some of the investigations now are in. That's part of their goal. I mean, one, they want to see who else was involved in the case. Because let's be real. This is not something that only four people knew about. No. And did it. No. No. I promise you that I would not be surprised if every single member of the KKK at that time was aware of this plan that they had in their little meetings. And that, yeah, that would include local political leaders and law enforcement. So they're responsible too. But nope, no charges. So today... The Christmas Day bombing, as it is known in some places, it is thought as the first murder of the civil rights movement. And this is years before figures like Martin Luther King Jr. or Medgar Evers were killed. And again, the investigation into their deaths, it followed this pattern that had been set for centuries. The law enforcement, instead of trying to find the actual murderers, these white Southerners rallied around the perpetrators, protected them, few gave any information that could help build the case, even when it's well known. 
Because to these racist assholes, well, if you're murdering a black person, that's not murder. And there are so many fucking people that believe that today. I mean, all the people who, when this exact thing happens today, their first thought is, oh, well, what did they do? What did the the victim do wrong? No, they're a victim who was shot. Yeah. In the end, the reforms that... Harry and Harriet Moore fought so hard to achieve. I mean, they would have helped people like them find hope for a fair trial and legal system. They were fighting for justice that would have been used in their own case. But they were murdered before the civil rights movement really took off and had the eventual impact that it did. So in their case, just like in the cases of thousands of black people that have been lynched and murdered with no legal resolution it's looking like justice is never going to be served no unfortunately with how many times they've tried to reopen this case and failed every single time i don't see a success in the near future no and this is one of many one of way too many way way too many yes i agree And this, one of the big reasons why I wanted to pick this case is, again, like we talked about earlier, this veneer that the 1950s has of, like, the housewife cooking the casserole, the husband coming home from work, everyone has a new car and living in the suburbs. That's white people. Yep. That's middle class white people. That's it. The black people that were growing up at the same time period, the 50s is the start of the civil rights movement, the redlining and white flight that led to the destruction of the inner cities. Because with redlining, black people weren't allowed to move to the suburbs. They weren't allowed to own property. So when all the white people left, that's when these inner cities became, I mean, when you say inner city, what you think of with not the monetary support, not the social programs that should be there. And so this, I don't know, it's one of the reasons why I think there are a lot of people who have this like, we need to go back to the good old days, traditional. And it's like, the good old days for who? For you straight, cisgendered, white, middle class people? Yeah, good for you. Everyone else was suffering to prop you up. I'm really glad you picked this case because it's so important when we think about times in the past or when we think about the present day to think from multiple perspectives and not just your own, not just the one you're familiar with, not just what you know, not just what you're told. Look at all the perspectives because everyone has a very different perspective. It's exactly like you're Mm -hmm. saying, the good old days, what does that even mean? The good old days for everyone does not exist. That is not a thing that is real. And so I agree. It's heartbreaking to just hear about, oh, let's go back to tradition. No, never go back. Taking a step backwards in any way is never what you want to do. I mean, can you imagine if you were at work and you were like, you know what? We need to stop using computers and we need to go back to pen, paper, and like fucking abacus. No, that's stupid. (laughs) Progress is important. It helps. It grows. That's how you're able to do your job. And that's what's always blown my mind is in what world is it ever like, yeah, you know what? We need to reset the clock 50 years. No. Also, it's one of those things when people like, ah. I was born in the wrong time period. I feel like I'm from the 50s. I'm like, well, if I was born in the 50s, 
I would be murdered and dragged behind a pickup truck, so no. Like, wear your A-line skirts. Go get a fucking milkshake. But also understand that what your rights are today and what they would have been then, and also what you're saying to other people. When you're saying, God, I wish we could go back to the 50s, you're saying to your Black friends and those around you, God, can we go back before the Civil Rights Movement? Can we reset the progress and freedoms you have? These are things people don't talk about, and... It really is. And I'm not trying to dog on anyone who has made those type of statements. Because, again, a lot of times when those things are said, you're not thinking of it from anyone's perspective but your own. And the thing to learn is to think no. think about things from more than just your perspective. Absolutely. So, with that, Brittany, do you want to go into your mid-century case, your murders from the 1950s? Yes, I will go into mine, and it's very much the opposite side of the coin. Okay. The case I'm covering is the murder of Marilyn Reese Shepard. The sources I used, an article in Thought Co. by Charles Montaldo, an episode of BuzzFeed Unsolved, the puzzling case of Marilyn and Sam Shepard, and an article from Cleveland's Fox 8 station by Jen Steer. So this guy, Sam Shepard. He was one of the men who, in high school, he was voted most likely to succeed. He was very athletic, smart, good-looking, and he came from a really good family. Marilyn Shepard was also attractive. She had beautiful hazel eyes and long brown hair. And so, of course, the two of them were destined to be together. We can all see this. They started dating in high school, and they eventually got married after Sam graduated from the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians in September 1945. People marrying their high school sweetheart, like, what is that like? First off, what's it like having a high school sweetheart, for one? But two, God, haven't you did all the work. You're done. You found him. You lucky bitch. <laughs> like, listeners, that you're, like, married and in love, and you're like, yeah, we met freshman year of high school. That's fucking rude. (laughs) So after Sam graduated from medical school, he continued his studies and received his doctor of osteopathy degree, and he went to work at the Los Angeles County Hospital. His father, Dr. Richard Shepard, and his two older brothers, Richard and Stephen, they were also doctors, and they were actually running a family hospital in Ohio, and they convinced Sam to move back in the summer of 1951 to work in the family practice. A family hospital. That's weird. That's that's some Grey's Anatomy shit. I know. Like, <laughs> I work with my sisters. I'm like, which Dr. Shepard do you want? Because there's like four of us. There's McDreamy, McMurder, McUgly. And McBrains. I don't oh. know. And McDonald's, just next door. <laughs> there's Ronald. <laughs> He's the brother <laughs> that, was, that didn't become a doctor. And so basically, they just don't talk about him. He's just clowning around. Stop. (laughs) So at this point, Sam and Marilyn had a four-year-old son, Samuel Reese Shepard, and they called him Chip. With a loan from Sam's father, they purchased their first home. And this house was really nice. It sat on a high cliff overlooking Lake Erie Shore in Bay Village, which was a semi-elite suburb of Cleveland. So they're in, like, the good part of town. This is the 50s that you think of when you think of the 50s, and you think of this idyllic suburb. It was Bay Village. It was all white, I promise you. 100%. Marilyn was a mother, homemaker, and taught Bible classes at their Methodist church. 
to most people, Sam and Marilyn's marriage, it looked like it was perfect. They had no issues, but we all know that's not fucking real. Sam was a well-respected neurosurgeon, and their neighborhood was one of the ones where, like, everyone's friends. But the truth was that their marriage was suffering because Sam was having affairs. Marilyn knew about Sam's affair with a former Bayview nurse named Susan Hayes. And although the couple did experience problems, they never discussed divorce. On the night of July 4th, 1954, Marilyn, who at the time was four months pregnant, and Sam, they entertained their neighbors. They had everyone come over, they had dinner, drinks, and they had a movie night. And at about midnight, after Sam had fallen asleep on the couch, Marilyn says goodbye to the guests, sees them out, and she goes upstairs to go to bed. I want to host a dinner party. If this pandemic ever ends, I want to host a dinner party in my one-bedroom apartment, I guess. Wait till you're at your next one. More space. Yeah. I'm going to make a fresh tomato tart. I love tomato. I like that's a dinner party thing. Tomato pie is amazing, by the way. It's so good. It's one of my favorite foods. I've only ever had it once, but when I had it, I was like, this is heaven in a pie. The events that take place next, they're full of scrutiny, and they're very much a mystery. At about 5.40 in the morning, Mayor Spencer Hook, who was a friend of the couple, he awoke to a frantic call from Sam. Sam asked Spencer to get there fast, saying, I think they killed Marilyn. So Spencer and his wife, Esther, immediately rush out of bed, they get in their car, and they drive over to Sam and Marilyn's house. When they get there, they find Sam in his office no shirt. He's like pulling at his neck and he's he's clearly in shock. So they call the police and the police get there by 6 a.m. I will say, you know, my first thought, and I almost asked it like multiple times is why didn't he just call the police? But honestly, it's one of those things that I can see that, like that being the first train of thought of like, why didn't they call the police? This is suspect. But I can also see like if some shit went down and I am like traumatized. I would not be surprised if I called you. I know. You call someone familiar. First instead of the police. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. And then when they get there being like, we're calling the police. Being like, oh shit, I haven't. Well, and to be fair, he did call the mayor. So there's there's that. (laughs) Well, fair. But also, I mean, especially in a case like this where it's not, he's not calling to get help he doesn't need an ambulance because she's been murdered the police got there at about 6 a.m and they opened the door to a gruesome crime scene marilyn's body was found upstairs she was facing upwards with her face turned towards the door and she'd been beaten and slashed beyond recognition she had over 20 deep gashes on her face and scalp and blood was covering the bed there was also heavy spatter dripping on the walls Her pajamas were partially removed, and a later autopsy would report that her death occurred around 4.30 in the morning. Sam Shepard was the only witness to the crime, which also made him the most likely suspect. There was no forced entry, there was no murder weapon at the scene, and not a single thing had been stolen from the house. Additionally, when the coroner examined Marilyn's pillow, he said there was an outline of what looked to be a surgical instrument. On the pillow? Like it had been put down and then blood came out and so you could see the the shape of a scalpel. Oh, okay. I was thinking like an indention, like some fucking memory foam shit. But okay, like a 
a blood outline. Either a blood a, outline gotcha. or a blood like stamp. Okay, now I'm following. Also at the scene, outside of the house, kind of in a bush in their like front yard, there was a bag that was found. And in that bag, it had Sam's watch, his fraternity ring, and a key all covered in blood. According to Sam Shepard, he woke up in the middle of the night to what he thought was his wife calling his name. He ran up to their bedroom and he saw someone who he described later as a bushy-haired man or a white form fighting with his wife. But immediately he was struck on the head, which rendered him unconscious. When he woke up, he saw his wife laying there. He gets up and he, he checks her pulse. She's covered in blood and he doesn't find one. She's dead. So then immediately he's like, holy shit, my son. Is my son okay? Because again, they have a four-year-old son, Chip. He goes into Chip's mm-hmm. room and thankfully Chip was unharmed. Sam then hears some noises coming from downstairs. And so he runs down and he sees their back door open. And he goes outside and he he sees someone moving towards the lake and he chases after that person. And the two of them begin to fight. During this fight and the struggle, Sam is once again struck and loses consciousness. When he wakes up, it's almost dawn and he's missing his shirt and his watch. And this is when he gets up and goes back in the home and calls the mayor. So for months, Sam would describe what happened over and over but few people believed him. Yeah, I'm not believing him either. So he's saying, I mean, I get it. He was asleep downstairs. He passed out after the party. But he gets upstairs and they're full on murdering her. But just knock him out. Like, it, he's relatively unharmed. And then he wakes up, checks her pulse and everything. Goes downstairs, chases them out, fights on the beach which is weird if they're living on a cliff, but okay. Like, you know, let's say there's a trail or like, let's say it makes sense. Yeah. Because it would be super weird if he was like, mm-hmm, and then I scaled the 100-foot cliff. Yeah, <laughs> that's part of my story. But he fights them on the beat. And again, they just knock him out. They already showed that they're totally cool murdering someone. And he's been knocked out twice now. And then they steal his shirt. Weird. And they also steal his watch, And then I guess run back to the house, put it in a little bag and throw it in a bush in their front yard. (laughs) Or the other story being he murdered his wife. Oh, shit, I got blood on my watch and ring. I got to hide these. My shirt's covered in blood because I was, you know, murdering my wife. Let me take this off and hide it. This is what happened. Like, yeah, dude, it's a shitty alibi or the weirdest fucking murderers I have heard in a long time. Also, a fight on the beach. Who are you, Aquaman? Well, and that's exactly what people were thinking. Not not the Aquaman thing, but... <laughs> like, verbatim, that entire, like, paragraph and a half that I just said. My monologue just now. Verbatim. Authorities were honing in on Sam. They knew about his infidelities, and they thought that this would be a possible motive for the murder. And the evidence they found pointed them to Susan, which, like I said, was the woman that Marilyn had found out Sam was having an affair with. Oh, like Susan and him murdered her together? No, their evidence pointed to the fact that he was having an affair with Susan. (gasps) Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. So additionally, while this is happening... The media ran wild with the story. And by July 20th, there were headlines saying things like, someone is getting away with murder. And they were all calling for Sam's arrest. 
Sam was arrested for the first-degree murder of his wife on July 30th, 1954, and his trial began in October. The prosecution's evidence relied heavily on the coroner's testimony. Susan also ended up taking the stand, and she brought up their two-year affair. Up until this point, Sam had been denying it, but when he took the stand, he finally admitted to the infidelity. So he's being called out right then and there. He's admitting that he lied. This is not good for him on the stand. Yeah, he's like, no, we never had an affair for all this leading up to it. And she gets on, she's like, um, yeah, no, we we fucked for years. And he's like, I lied. I am a liar about that. Not this, but that, yes, I did. I did lie about that. Like, think about it. Dude. He literally just fed into the prosecutor's hands with that. Because all they had to do was turn to the jury and say, well, he lied about having an affair. Who's not to say he's lying about not murdering his wife? Mm. Exactly. Truth. In December 1954, Sam was found guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 10 years. After 10? All of this media, a very biased judge... And police that focused only on a single suspect, Sam Shepard, it resulted in what was later seen as a wrongful conviction that would take years to overturn. Now, I uh, there's an asterisk on that, and I will get into more details because just wait. Okay, because, I mean, I can see where you're coming from, you know, if the judge is biased, you know, if the police are only focusing on him, like, yeah, but, I mean, damn, as... I mean, as you all heard from my comments when you were saying it, like, it thousand percent sounds like it is him. So, like, why would you focus on other suspects? But, okay, yeah, can explain yourself. So, Sam's brothers did not believe that he had murdered his wife. And so they hired a forensic scientist to review the evidence and information. Because the coroner, he never submitted any blood or fingerprint evidence. So just think about that. I know this is the 50s, but there was no, like, real evidence in that first trial forensic evidence when there's a shit ton of it all over the house. It's all circumstantial and conjective. Yeah. No. Conjective? Conjunctivitis. Conjecture. No. Conjecture. Conjecture. There you go. The brothers believed that the coroner went into the room, immediately assumed Sam did it, and built his case around that. Ah. Okay. The brothers also wanted to hire Sam a new attorney, so they hired F. Lee Bailey. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he was one of O.J. Simpson's attorneys. He was a part of the Dream Team. Oh my god, how old is this goblin? (laughs) Clearly old. This must have been towards the beginning of his career, and O.J., he was very old. Because, yeah, it was. there's like a 35-year difference between the two. Yeah. So they hired F. Lee Bailey, and he was taking over Sam's appeal. He got the trial reopened on the grounds that it was poorly presided by the previous judge, and there was poor management. One example is that the judge was actually up for re-election, and the defense tried to get the trial moved out of Cleveland. They wanted to make it fair. The media had started up so much, so they wanted to give Sam a fair trial, but the judge denied Mm -hmm. it and he was also overheard saying outside of the court during the trial that sam was guilty as hell wow he's biased as hell and also in general in election years 
judges conviction rates skyrocket because all elected judges you know one of their big things is they're tough on crime and they're gonna bring justice and their attack ads on you know their rivals are they let these murderers walk free and so it's one of the reasons why the idea of elected judges is something I'm so against because, like, can you imagine another office more in need of being nonpartisan and, like, non trying to, like, get the favor of the people? Like, it should be a judge. They should be completely nonpartisan, fully evidence based and shit. But yeah, during election years, if you do a crime and you're convicted in an election year or you're, that's when your trial is, you're fucked. And that information about him saying Sam was guilty as hell. That came out years after the trial. It was actually a reporter. She later, and it was during, you know, what I'm going to get to, like his second trial. She brought this up that she had had like a private conversation with him. And he was saying things like, Sam's guilty as hell. And she just didn't report any of this information. If she had, he would have (sighs) immediately been taken off the case. Because again, you can't be more biased than already saying someone's guilty before the trial's even done. Yeah. So on July 16th, 1964, Judge Weinman freed Shepard after finding five violations of Shepard's constitutional rights during his trial. The judge said that the trial was a mockery of justice. You know, from what you've said, I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. While Sam was in prison, he corresponded with Ariane Tebenjohans, who was a wealthy, beautiful blonde woman from Germany. The two of them married the day after his release from prison. Wow. Why are there people who are like, you're in prison. You murdered your wife. Wanna marry me? Like, y'all. All the people who are like, are writing all these love letters to Bundy and Charles Manson, the other convicted killers, and like, in Sam Shepard's case, I can understand it more because it's like, oh, innocent. Like, that's the fighting to get him off. But she's fighting to get him off in another way. Yeah, but like, stop writing letters to murderers. Okay, thanks. Or even people who are like, yeah, you're really like, not sure if they didn't do it. Like, let's just not write them letters of love. Letters like, of love. How, how about, let's do this. Everyone, anytime you hear about someone writing a letter to a convicted murderer and it's not like oh that's my mom in jail for like murdering people i'm writing to her because like okay that's different that's family but like stranger murderers every time you hear about that let's write a letter to like the family of a victim and just be like hey i know you don't know me i'm a stranger i just want to let you know that like i love and support you and everything you're going through like boom how fucking powerful would that be that would be extremely powerful in may 1965 a federal appeals court voted to reinstate Sam's conviction. So in November 1966, his second trial began. But this time, there was special attention given to ensure that Sam's constitutional rights were protected. And there was also a lot of new evidence that came into play. So one question I have, and you might not know the answer. Maybe one of our listeners might know an answer. Maybe one of our listeners who happens to be a lawyer who happens to text us these answers when we don't know might know the answer. (laughs) Hint, hint. How does double jeopardy work with, like, appeals and retrials? Because from my understanding, you can't be tried for the same crime twice. So in a retrial, you're being tried for the same crime twice. I don't know. So uh, let us know. So one of the things that came forward 
is that forensics stated that based on the blood spatter, the murderer would have been covered in blood. If you remember, I said that the blood spatter on the walls was dripping. It was everywhere. Sam only had a small spot on his pant leg. So even if his shirt, we know it's gone, even if it was covered in blood, the fact that his pants would only have just a little bit, how's that working? But a counter argument, he had time to clean himself up. He was the one who notified someone. Also, he's a doctor. He could have worn one of those uh, paper gowns. It's true. So additionally, the murderer was left-handed, but Sam was right-handed. Can't fake that. Unless you're ambidextrous. I'm just saying. Counter-argument. Okay. Also, Marilyn's teeth, and this is kind of a weird statement, so a little bit of a cringe warning. Marilyn's teeth were found under her body. So, like, out of her mouth, she was laying on her teeth. And this was showing how viciously she fought back. And she was biting her attacker. You know, hard enough to where he could, like, hit her mouth and, like, her teeth came out. Like, but Sam had no bite marks. Okay. I mean, you can't you can't fake not having bite wounds if you have bite wounds. But I also wonder, like, you know, could she have just been hit in the attack and not necessarily bit? But I don't, I don't know. I don't Counter know. Counter arguments. I wondered that too because they're more the whole biting and your teeth come out thing is a little bit weird to me. I agree. I hate that. Also, I hate thinking about teeth because it's literally the only part of your body where bones are sticking out of your skin. When you whiten your teeth, you're bleaching your own bones. <laughs> um, <laughs> we like white bones. Sparkly white bones. I hate it. It's so gross, but I'm definitely going to use a white strip tonight. <laughs> so some of the biggest evidence was actually the blood found on a closet door. Because this blood did not belong to Marilyn, and it did not belong to Sam. And it was a big blood, blood spot on their closet door. Oh. Additionally... There were witnesses that had seen someone in the neighborhood around the time of Marilyn's death. Why they were up at 4.30 in the morning looking out the window, I don't know. They said that this was a white man with a bushy crew cut that they saw walking around the neighborhood around the shepherd's home. A bushy crew cut? What the hell is a bushy crew cut? Those are contradictory. (laughs) Maybe like tall? No, crew cut means short. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. Crew cut's like a military cut, but bush. Maybe like, maybe he got a crew cut and then, you know, Miss Rona came along and so pandemic <laughs> happened and it grew out a little bit. He's got a grown but out crew 50s. cut and it sticks straight up. I hate that, but honestly, bitch got broccoli head. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing his hair. Another thing is that Sam's injuries, they also led to him not being the attacker. He had neck spasms. His feet were shriveled up because they had been in water, which that matches with his story of having a fight on the beach, knocked unconscious, and waking up hours later, his feet had been in the water. Okay, when you said shriveled feet, I'm thinking of mummy shit. And I'm like, what kind of sickness does he have? He's like necrotic feet. He's got neck spasms. I'm like, okay, yeah. He can't, he's not going to be able to be the murderer. Can he walk? <laughs> These injuries were from this night, like the night of the attack. He also had a fractured vertebrae, which is why his neck was spasming. So after 16 days of testimony, the jury found Sam Shepard not guilty. However, his innocence would remain in question, and this was going to follow him around for the rest of his life. 
His release was truly more about the mismanagement of his trial and not about the fact that he was not guilty. So even with all of this new evidence that came into play, what got him out and what made him found not guilty was that presumption of innocence, that beyond a reasonable doubt factor. The jury could yeah. not reasonably say, like, there were doubts. They were like, oh, well, there's this and this and this. However, it they didn't think he didn't necessarily do it. Yeah, it would. It, it's one of those cases, oh, it's not hung jury, but it's when, when the jury can't decide. I mean, I guess that's hung jury. But it's like a NOLO? No. I think it's hung jury that, like, they can't agree, so there's a mistrial. But I guess it's not that they couldn't agree because they all agreed that there's reasonable doubt but like there's also reasonable guilt no i see i don't Uh. think it i don't think it matters if there's reasonable doubt and everyone agrees that then that's that a hundred percent no i absolutely agree with if there's reasonable doubt like he should not be that's why the whole trial system is based on the innocent until proven guilty not Guilty until proven innocent. Even though... So, yeah. Even though, let's be real, a lot of trials are guilty until proven innocent. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you're a person of color. Yeah. Once Sam was freed, he returned to work in medicine, but he also started drinking really heavily and using drugs. His life quickly dissolved when he was sued for malpractice after one of his patients died. And in 1968, Ariane divorced him. And she said that he had stolen money from her, threatened her physically, and was abusing alcohol and drugs. Sam then took a very interesting pivot in his life, and he became a wrestler. What? It's one of the weirdest turns I've ever seen in a case. But he used, like, he was like, oh, I'm a neurosurgeon. I know how to protect the brain. I'm going to wrestle. But so, yeah, he did that. That's weird. And what's even more interesting is that his wrestling name was Killer. Oh, that is in poor taste. Very. Honestly, your case, wherever it's going, like whatever path it is true, it's just tragic. It is. It's either the case of a husband who murdered his wife and got away with it, which is tragic, or it's a man whose wife was murdered, was wrongly convicted, and had his life ruined over it. Which is tragic. I know. They're both lose situations. On April 6, 1970, Sam Shepard died of liver failure as a result of his heavy drinking. And his son, Samuel Reese Shepard, Chip, he's devoted his life to clearing his father's name. Chip has always been trying to solve his mother's murder. He believed that he had actually identified the murderer, someone named Richard Eberling, who was their handyman for some time. Richard had intimate knowledge of their house. He had seen, like, blueprints and plans, knew about, like, a secret door into the basement or, you know, some weird shit in an old house. And he'd actually stolen two of Marilyn's rings. However, Richard passed a polygraph test and he was never investigated any further because this was back in the 50s when they thought that that actually meant something. Yeah. So he passed that polygraph test, and they never did any more investigation. However, in 1989, he was convicted of the murder of Ethel May Durkin. And after he'd been in jail for nine years, he was on his deathbed, and he had a deathbed confession to killing Marilyn. Oh! 
A witness said Richard told him he had hit Sam with a pail and that Marilyn bit the hell out of him, which all of that very much fits with Sam's story. There are a couple other theories out there about who could have done this. One was that the mayor's wife, Esther, did it. This was actually one that Evely Bailey put together. He was saying that Marilyn was having an affair with the mayor. Esther was really pissed about it. And in a jealous rage, she killed Marilyn. But literally, there's no traction or no evidence or no anything There was nothing ever even found out about any type of affair between Marilyn and the mayor. Like, no. Yeah, that, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. Another was a story about, and I didn't write his name down, but he was a guy that was in the military, ended up being a serial killer, happened to be in the area. So this is one of those, like, shoehorn in this murder that we don't know, and let's add it to this serial killer's roster, because that's easy. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like, oh, well, the Green River Killer had access to an airport. So, you know, that kind of like, just very string it together of like, they could have been there. Exactly. Lots of people could have been there. Yes. So it's been 66 years. And this is one of Cleveland's most infamous cases to this day. And it's still unsolved. Even with him having a deathbed confession? He was never taken to trial. There was no way to actually prove Richard did this. Just because someone says when they're dying that they did it, that's not a resolution. I guess that's true. I feel like I just always take deathbed confessions as like, okay. I mean, there isn't justice, but it is answered. But I mean, again, who, who knows? He's old and dying. Who knows what the fuck he's going to say. But the thing is, there was absolutely zero evidence. He could have said, I'm dying. And by the way, I really need you to know, I did not kill Marilyn. And it would hold the same weight as him saying, I'm dying. And I need you to know, I killed Marilyn. That's true. That is a good point. There's nothing to back it up. So that's why this case is technically unsolved. So this case may sound familiar to some of you. You may be sitting there thinking, where have I heard this? How do I how do I know something like this? Number one, a lot of husbands get convicted of uh, murdering their wives. So that could be part of it. But the other is it also inspired the movie The Fugitive starring Harrison Ford. This movie came out in 1993. I've never seen it. Tyler, I know you haven't. <laughs> Obviously, I've never seen it. It's a movie. But apparently it was supposed to be like a really good movie. And it's Harrison Ford like back in the day. And that is the case of the murder of Marilyn Shepard. I really like that you kept the focus on Marilyn, because this is a case I've heard a couple times before in the past that I did not know all these things about, slash remember, but I feel like so often it's presented as, like, the case of Sam Shepard. Oh, also, by the way, Marilyn was murdered. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's what I wanted the point to be made. We don't know if he did it or not. His innocence was never proven. His shitty first case is why he got out of jail. And new evidence, yeah, pointed to him not doing it. But that's not why the jury said he wasn't guilty. So this is a very interesting case. And it's one of those that, again, it's probably never going to be solved. Like, information is not going to come out. It's been too long. Yeah. 
we're not going to know. Well, it's like, what information is there to come out? I feel like that's the thing about a lot of the unsolved cases that we feel like are never going to get solved. And again, sometimes the ones we think never will do wind up getting solved, which is incredible. But I feel like so many of them, it's like, well, what information is there? Because like you mentioned earlier, it's not like even if another person gave a deathbed confession... Okay, well, what's that really going to mean? Yeah. Or, unless they also were like, oh, I did it. Here's the Ziploc with the knife. I did it with, with the blood. Like, here's the whole story. What evidence would it take to actually solve it? And physically, is that even possible to get 50, 70 years later? Right. Well, and there was never a murder weapon found. We don't know exactly what was used to kill Marilyn. When they were looking at that potential like serial killer guy that was in the area, he had a crowbar and they were like, hmm, that could have done the damage to Marilyn. And it could have, but still, that may not have been the weapon. So it's... Yeah. Yeah, cases like this are hard and there's been so much advancement now, yet you can't go back in time and solve all the cases, you know? Like, there are some that, unfortunately, we're just not going to know. The 50s were crazy. They were. And thank you, Holly, for giving us this topic. I know we we may not have done it exactly like you had in mind, but I think that we brought a good episode forward as far as, you know, representation of the 50s and the things that were going on. I don't know. When I think mid-century idyllic suburbs and stuff, I think both our cases had those in it in different ways true i mean i think your case in particular if any of y'all have ever seen masters of sex his house is like literally what i'm imagining their house to be <laughs> like the very much like mid-century 50s like here's my gin not cart my gin armoire basically and the sunken in fully carpeted living room all that shit you know i i think as far as I don't know, Holly, let us know. Did we do did we do your topic justice? <laughs> and on that note, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, give us those five stars. We absolutely love hearing what you have to say. It is literally the highlight of our days when we get a notification that we got a new review, we text each other. It's everything. So head over to Apple Podcast, do that. We love you. And be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hop on over there to check out what wines we did, see our beautiful faces, you know the drill. Like, just chat with us on social. We're there. Blood and Wine Pod. We are. 24-7. Except when we're sleeping. (laughs) Or working. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.